We're going to read um, Esther chapter 8 today, and that's page 414 uh, in the, our Black Bible. And please stand if you're able. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the things seem right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all of the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews and in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned, and at that time, in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate, annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is in the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service rode out hurriedly urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many of, from the people of the country declared themselves Jews, for the fear of Jews had fallen on them.
Praise God. I'm so happy to be with you all this morning and to share uh, from the Word. To be honest, when I read this book initially, uh, I hadn't read it in years, and when I read it uh, more recently, I was just totally confused by it. I mean, it's such an odd book. Uh, as we were studying it as part of the preaching cohort uh, where a few of us were gathered uh, to, uh, to prepare to preach, you know, one thing uh, that stands out is the word God doesn't exist in the book. It's kind of an odd situation, right? The, the three letters, G-O-D, doesn't exist at all. I mean, these characters of Esther and Mordecai are um, anything but perfect. They're a little bit, you know, odd characters. And, uh, you know, I remember when I was reading through it thinking, well, if anything, I don't want to preach about this massive massacre that en happens at the end, because that is such an odd uh, sermon. And then as um, Ajay was handing out the different sermon assignments, he, of course, assigned me the annihilation passage. Um, I don't know what he was implying that he thought I could preach this passage, but um, I'm going to give it a shot. One good thing is it's an incredibly long passage, so Shelley already took half my time by just <laughs> reading this thing in and of itself, um, but um, it's all good. And so I was saying the first couple times when I read it, I was confused. I didn't get it at all, right? I mean, you've got these imperfect characters, and then you've got this uh, war, and the whole thing just seemed like super excessive. But as I read it again and again and again, that confusion began to turn to excitement. Because what I realized was that this passage wasn't about these characters. This passage wasn't about this war, but it was about the fact that God is in control. Not Xerxes, not Haman, not a king, not a president, not any man, not any circumstance, but praise God that God is in control of our lives and for his people. God is for his people. And so, um, you know, it's really hard to see this when we're going through difficult circumstances in our lives. Uh, maybe when we get passed up for that promotion time and time again, when we lose our job, when we're having sickness and illness, um, when our loved ones may pass away. I don't know what circumstance you're going through today, but I'm here to encourage you. I'm here to encourage you that the Holy Spirit helps us understand through this scripture that God is in control. It just was exciting to me and it just brought my heart to life. You know, at the end of chapter, so let's jump in. At the end of chapter seven, we see that Haman's plot to destroy the Jews is thwarted. And it's exposed by Esther when she holds this feast. The man who had set this plan into motion to annihilate the Jews from the face of this planet is actually killed. He's hung on the very gallows that he had set up to hang Mordecai. I mean, think about that. The second most powerful man in the land. And just to make sure we understand what land we're talking about, this is a land that stretched from Ethiopia to India, 127 provinces. I mean, this is an incredibly powerful person 
and God uses Esther to expose what has happened, and now the number one enemy of the Jews is dead. He's gone. He is gone from the face of the earth. But we see that chapter 7 is just the beginning of a whole series of reversals that God is working for his people. And let's get into chapter 8, because I, as we go through verse by verse by verse, we see that God is in control of the big and the small, of every little detail he is working on behalf of his people. And it starts in the first verse. I mean, it's just on that day, King Ahasuerus, that thing for some reason is a mouthful to me, so I'm going to just use his Greek name, Xerxes, going forward, because if I keep saying Ahasuerus, my tongue is going to get knotted up. On that day, King Xerxes gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman. I mean, let's just stop right there to make sure we're level set on what just happened. These are some very small words. Gave to King Esther the house of Haman. Well, let's go back and check. Who was Haman? Haman was the second most powerful person. Haman was the guy that offered 10,000 talents for the annihilation of the Jews. He hated them so much. If we do some quick research, 10,000 talents is over a billion dollars. So Haman is a multi-multi-billionaire. I'm assuming if he's offering up a billion to kill some people, he's got to have lots of funds in addition to that. And now the king is giving Esther the house of Haman and making her a multi-billionaire. Well, who is Esther? Let's go back to the passage. If we go back earlier, she was an orphan. She had nothing. She had no one. And now she is the queen and independently wealthy multi-billionaire. That is God. That is God working. And if you jump to the, if you continue on, it says Mordecai came before the king. This is the same Mordecai that was sitting at the gate in chapter 4. He was sitting on the outside. And again, if you look at the passages, it says that if anyone comes before the king without an invitation, they're put to death. I mean, they were not messing around. You don't just show up in front of the king. And so now Mordecai is no longer sitting at the gate. He is before the king invited to come in to the inner court. What a turn of events. God is in control. And it doesn't stop there. We see that the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. God, the king not only brings him into the inner court, but he gives him a gift. He gives him the very ring that he had given to Haman when Haman had made his request to annihilate the Jews. And now when that was exposed, the king took back the ring, and now he gives it to Mordecai. Mordecai is now wearing the ring that Haman was wearing. What an incredible turn of events. The king has elevated Mordecai to be in his presence, to wear the signet ring. God is working on behalf of his people. So let's just keep going because it only gets better and better and better I don't know, I get excited by this stuff, so I'm going to try to share that excitement with you. In verses 3 through 6, we see Esther spoke to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, 
the Agagite, the plot which he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose before the king and uh, stood in, before the king, and she said, if it pleased the king, if I have found favor in his sight, if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by that guy Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews. For how can I bear to see the calamity that's coming to my people? Or how, how can I bear the destruction of my kindred? I mean, we see this incredible picture of Esther just crying and pleading before the king, but she does it in this incredibly skillful way. I mean, could you imagine the stress that she's feeling as she's standing before this king? He's ruthless. I think he's a little unstable. I mean, literally life and death are in the balance and she needs to make this plea. And she does this like mind trick that I can't even fathom on, other than God gave her the wisdom where she intertwines, she makes all these statements. She makes one statement after the next. It's like these four consecutive statements. The first statement and the third statement about his favor toward the request that she's about to make. The second statement and the fourth statement about, are about his favor towards her, right? Like she intertwines this favor towards her, which we know is very high. She, he just made her a multi-billionaire and his favor towards the request. So even before she asks, she brings these things together and then she makes her request. And when she makes the request, she's very um, careful with her words where she says, hey, remember that thing that that guy Haman did? And she doesn't make him complicit. She doesn't make, have him involved, even though he's the one that issued the edict. And she puts it all on Haman. All this to say that even in this time where her emotions must have been running high, where she probably couldn't think straight, God is in control. And God gives her the right words at the right time to be able to address the king in the right way and be able to make this request. All right, great. There's a lot more work to be done. What does the king say? Let's go to verse 7 and 8. And King Xerxes said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I've given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So the king responds in an interesting way, right? I mean, he takes credit for all that he's done. He's like, look, I don't know if you remember, but I just literally gave Esther the house of Haman. I did that. I did that, right? And by the way, that enemy of yours, I'm not sure if you noticed, but if you look out the window, he's hanging on the gallows. So I've done everything I can. And then he, you know, he's, he knows the law. He points out this technicality. He says, hey, I don't know if you know this, but like an edict written, issued by the king and signed with the, ed uh, with the king's ring is irrevocable. It's like done. So... He's basically saying, look, I'm, I, of course, I'm the most powerful man in the world, but I can't revoke an irrevocable edict. It's done. So I don't know what you want me to do. But hey, if you want to write something to save the Jews, 
If you want to put together an edict that's going to revoke an irrevocable edict, sure, have at it. Here's the pen right away. Go ahead, write what you like. And you know, up to this point, this king, as you've read, if you've read the earlier passages, literally deferred every major decision to his advisors and did what they said. That's, what, that's like his MO. And so praise God, because he does it again. He's like, look, I don't have any answers. You write what you like, and I'll go ahead, and I'll issue the edict. And I praise God, right? I pray, we praise God because God is in control, and he's now elevated Mordecai, and he's given Mordecai the pen to write an edict to revoke an irrevocable edict and to save his people. And so what does he write? How do you, how do you write something like that's how do you What do you do about something that's irrevocable? Well, let's jump to 11 and 12. Mordecai says, hey, he essentially writes an edict designed to reverse Haman's edict. It says, saying that king, the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives to destroy, to kill, to annihilate any armed force of any people of any province that might attack them, children and women included, to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. You know, the key difference of, ha of Mordecai's edict versus Haman's edict is that Mordecai's edict called for the Jews to defend themselves. It wasn't an edict about uh, annihilation, which I thought it was initially. I read it, I had to read it a few times and realized, okay, Mordecai wasn't calling for mass annihilation. He wasn't calling for mass genocide, but he was writing an edict that basically allowed the Jews to defend themselves and to take up arms. Again, Mordecai, God is in control and puts Mordecai in the position and gives him the wisdom to write up an edict that can revoke this irrevocable situation. And what is exciting is that in verse 9, we'll see that the edict goes out just as broadly as the first edict. I mean, again, God is in the details, right? It's not just this high-level thing. God is working in the details of the people. In verse 9, it says, the edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, and it went to the satraps, the officials, the provinces of Ethiopia, 127, and it's also, it doesn't stop there. It says, to each province it's in its own script, in its, in each people in its own language. And it's also to the Jews in the script in their language. Because if we go back to chapter 3, verse 12, when the initial edict went out, it went out to all of those people, all of those provinces, but it wasn't written in the language that the Jews could understand in this time, it goes out just as broadly, but also translated for the Jews so that the Jews could understand how God was working on their behalf. God is working on their behalf to save his people. God is in control. And then if you jump to verse 10, I also like this detail that God is working through because I would say it not only went out just as broadly, but it went out with even more urgency. We may be able to debate that, but let's go through the details. The verse says in, in, in 10, then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses and then were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, 
The royal stud is getting involved here to help the people. In verse 14, the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command. If you go back to 3, verse 15, when Haman's edict was issued, it says a very simple, the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king. So I would argue that God, okay, you have this irrevocable edict. We have an edict that's going to revoke it. It goes out just as broadly. It goes out to even the Jews so that they understand. And it goes out with even more urgency, you know, royal studs getting involved in all. And it's going out to all the people. But, you know, you see the king getting involved. He's offering up his royal horses. He's urging urging the people to go out. You know, I can understand Esther feeling urgency, right? This is her people. I can understand Mordecai feeling urgency. This is his people. But the king, Xerxes, who doesn't know their God, he doesn't know their people, but God is using King Xerxes to save his people now. And he is working through him to drive urgency. Brothers and sisters, God is in control. And he is working on our behalf through his people and through the people around us. He is working and he is in control. You know, I would go through verses 15 through 17, and it is amazing, one after the next, what we see God is doing. 15, Mordecai went from the presence of the king in royal robes, blue and white, with a golden crown and a robe of fine linen. I'll remind you that this is the same Mordecai in chapter 4, verse 1, who was literally in sackcloth and ashes. He's gone from sitting at the gate to now being in the inner court, wearing the signet ring, you know, flashing some very nice robes, literally, royal robes, a golden crown, a robe of fine linen. God is in control. You continue in 15, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. This is the same city when Haman's edict went out. If you go to 3 verse 15, it says the city was thrown into confusion. Because even though that city was not filled with Jews, it was filled with non-Jews, but when they saw the edict of Haman, they were totally confused. And now they get the edict of Mordecai, and they are shouting and rejoicing. God is in control. And then you jump to verses 16 and 17. It says, the Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor in every province, in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, feast and holiday. What a difference from when Chapter 4, verse 3, when Haman's edict went out. When Haman's edict went out, there was mourning among the Jews, fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. The fasting has gone to feasting. The weeping has gone to rejoicing. God is in control. And then verse 17, I just find incredibly interesting as God continues to work. It says... And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. You know, this new edict has done more than anyone could have imagined. 
It's helped revoke the irrevocable, but it, you know, why stop there? It's gone to the next level. You literally have people converting and becoming Jews. They are now converting, and I guarantee you there was no one converting and becoming a Jew, a Jew when Haman's edict went out. People were running for the hills. But now when this edict comes out, people are converting and becoming Jews. That is God. That is God working on behalf of his people. We don't see the word God. We don't see those three letters, but we see that God is working. And then if you go to chapter 9, you see that God completes the work in the first uh, 19 verses. The Jews are victorious on that 13th day of the 12th month. They gain mastery over their enemies. Um, that day where mass genocide was supposed to happen and all of those people were supposed to, all of the Jews were supposed to be wiped out from the face of this planet. I mean, that was the plan. What happens? The, God's people gain victory over their enemies. 500 people in, uh, in Susa, 75,000 in all the other provinces, the 10 sons of Haman, all wiped out. The enemies of the Jews are wiped out. You know, it seems like there was some more work to do uh, in, in the city of Susa. So Esther, Queen Esther says, hey, can we have one more day? One more day? And so they get one more day in the city of Susa. Another 300 of their enemies are wiped out. God is in control. God is in control. And we find that on the 14th day that the Jews are celebrating, it says... We hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for goodness and feasting, as a day of holiday, a day in which they send gifts for food to one another. He's transformed their mourning into celebration. You know, I would argue, my friends, I mean, is this all just coincidence? Is this all just happenstance or circumstance? Did all of these things just happen to come together? I would say, brothers and sisters, no. God is working on behalf of his people. And God is working on our behalf, on your behalf, through all of our difficult circumstances. You know, back in 2012, I received this uh, phone call that I had dreaded receiving for a long time. And I don't know that I've actually um, articulated this fear or verbalized this fear until right this uh, minute, but for years leading up to that phone call, I actually had this um, fear of receiving a call that uh, one of our parents would be diagnosed with cancer. Um, just, I just had this like fear. And in August of 2012, uh, we got a call from mom and dad uh, that dad was diagnosed with uh, multiple myeloma. I'd never heard of multiple myeloma, has anybody here heard of multiple myeloma? The doctors? Yeah, there's a lot of doctors here. I hope you've heard of multiple myeloma. <laughs> I'm just checking. Um, but, uh, you know, like, I don't know, 1% of people are diagnosed with that. So we started looking. It's a, it's a cancer of the blood. And so we started looking it up, and I started researching. We all did, and, um, you know, the treatments were limited. There was no cure. And it basically said that Dad had five years uh, to live. And so he started some treatment, he started chemo, and I would say that, um, you know, for those five years, he had some moments of remission, 
but for the most part, his life was a living hell. It was torturous. Um, this was a man that into his mid-60s, I still remember, um, I'd seen it and I would hear stories of dad, he was on the roof. I was like, dad, what are you doing on the roof? I'm like, oh, he's retarring the roof. I'm like, what? You know, he's like climbing under cars to fix them and crawling under trains because that was his job. And all that to say he was very active, very lively into his uh, 60s. But after these five years, um, you know, towards the end, he could barely even lift his spoon to eat, let alone uh, walk. And during this whole time, you know what his big dream was? His dream wasn't to get better so that he could travel the world. It wasn't to, you know, amass like a lot of wealth. To be honest, it wasn't even really to hang out with us. Um, he wanted to go back to India and preach the gospel. You see, the 20 years leading up to this, he was a missionary and he was traveling to India and preaching the gospel. And, and so his dream was to spend his retirement years going back to his homeland and declaring that Jesus is Lord. And so that didn't, uh, that didn't happen. That wasn't God's plan. And, um, you know, like clockwork, in October of 2017, Dad went on to be with the Lord. And he, God was so gracious. He gave us a few minutes. He gave us a, a, a few minutes with him before he passed. Uh, he was unconscious. We didn't think we would have any time with him. And by only the mercy and grace of the Lord, he regains consciousness and he starts to talk to us. And the last words that he has to say to us is fight for Jesus. The last words he has to say to us is fight for Jesus. You see, even after he went through five years of living hell and didn't get to live out his dream, he knew one thing to be true that God is in control of this situation, that Jesus Christ is my Lord, and even in death, I will praise him because he is in control. God is in control. I don't know what you're going through or why, but I do know this to be true, that if you confess Christ to be your Savior, he is in control. So I mentioned that um, I didn't know why this passage was assigned to me. I don't consider myself an annihilist, so it clearly wasn't that purpose. Um, but I was thinking, I hadn't preached in a long time. And um, you know, preaching here is serious. I don't know if you know. It takes a lot. Uh, like for me, I have to prepare for like three months before I can preach. Like I, I don't know, I just have to prepare. And due to life circumstances, there wasn't a season to prepare for three months to preach. But earlier this year, I did ask uh, Ajay, like I felt like there was an opportunity to uh, free up some time to prepare. And so I asked uh, Pastor Ajay, and there was this preaching cohort. And I jumped in, and I started studying this passage. And I just, it came to life within me and my wife uh, this truth about how God is in control in a new way. In a new way, it, it like came to life. And I mentioned this because it was so critical. Because I got approached by my company about 45 days ago. 
So I don't believe this was all coincidence or accident that, I, that I'm preaching. Because um, I got approached uh, 45 days ago about this opportunity. And just to be clear, like I'm a Philly guy, right? I, I, I was born in Boston for 10 years, 10 worst years of my life. <laughs> then I came to Bo uh, Philly. My, I saw the light, like 32 years of amazing bliss. It's like, you know, every day is rainbows and sunshine. Um, if you cut me, I I'm telling you, it's green, like green. I mean, uh, John George is my cardiologist. He takes my blood regularly. I mean, he mentioned, hey, it's kind of weird that your blood is green, but everything else looks good. Um, and so, you know, leaving Philly is like not a, like the furthest thing from our mind. Uh, you know, live here, be buried here, maybe, you know, out in front of Seven Mile Road if we could do that. Um, you know, but 45 days ago, the company approached me about this amazing opportunity. And um, initially, I just even told my boss, hey, I don't even want to talk about this. And he's like, look, at least just have a conversation. We want you here, but have a conversation. And so we have this conversation, and I speak to Liz. I speak to our pastors, I speak to our family, we pray, and we're gonna trust the Lord. And he's opening this door for us to move to Connecticut. God is in control. I couldn't have done that. I couldn't have even had a, a ability to pray about this without having studied the scripture and understanding what it meant. I couldn't have even thought about this leaving Philadelphia and all of our friends and family, this church, without truly believing that God is in control and he will lead our steps and guide us. And if it is his will, we'll be back. But either way, we will trust in him as we move forward. You see, my friends, there's an even greater enemy than Haman that is working against us, working for our annihilation, you see, that enemy is roaming to and fro within this world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, the beasts of the field, and the birds in the sky, and the, the fish in the sea. And he created man to take care of all of them in creation. And, to, and it was good. It was beautiful. And then that foe, that enemy greater than Haman shows up and deceives the man and the woman and sin enters the world and creates an irreconcilable divide. He literally created an irrevocable edict that was issued to annihilate us. But God is in control and he sends his son down to this earth, born of a virgin Mary. He lives an incredible life, healing the sick, making the lame to walk, the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the dumb to speak. He raises the dead. But most of all, he brings the good news of the gospel and he preaches, believe on me and you will be saved. And that irrevocable edict was revoked again. He dies on that cross for you and I. Dies. No sin. Never committed a crime. 
But for your sins and mine, he dies on that cross. But praise God that three days later, he rises from that tomb and that enemy, that great enemy, greater than Haman, is defeated and officially the edict is revoked and we now have hope in Jesus Christ. You know, what must we do to be saved? John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so now we have a hope, my brothers and sisters, that if we are to believe on him and trust that he is in control, I don't know what circumstances you're going through. I don't know why you're going through it. But we know that God is in control and we have this hope in Revelation that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The dead shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain. And all these things have been passed away. Amen? That is our hope. So brothers and sisters, let us believe today that God is in control of your life and mine. May God bless you with these words. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you that we can come and sit in your presence and hear from your word and worship and exalt you because you are in control, Lord God. In the good times and the bad, in sickness and in health, in victory and defeat, in the valleys and on the mountains, you are in control. And we thank you and we praise you and we give you glory and we give you honor. And I just pray, Lord God, that we have your spirit and your strength to be able to shout every day and give you praise. Thank you, Lord, that you are with us. Give us strength in the days to come. Amen.